David. We're going to start in Job 20 today. As we come to chapter 20 today, we are ending round two and going into round three of these arguments. Uh, So starting the book, um, we had the introduction and we saw, we got to see a glimpse into the heavenly places as Paul describes it. There's something going on that you and I don't perceive on a regular daily basis um, where all the angels are presenting themselves before God and Satan has to come and present himself and God proposes to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And that starts our story where um, Satan's claim is that Job only loves you because his life is so great because you've blessed him. If you were to take his blessings away, he would curse you to your face. And that's the first challenge. And of course, Job comes through. Uh, Satan is able to completely obliterate all of his livestock, his fields, his houses, and worst of all, his children. He kills all 10 of Job's children all in an instant. All of these servants come to him at the same time to bring the news of everything he's lost. And he still proclaims uh, the praises of God uh, in the midst of that. Uh, God is still praised, and so Satan is clearly wrong. And so then we see another glimpse that Satan comes again and says, well, you didn't let me attack him directly. You said I couldn't do anything to him. You know, everybody would be happy to have their health if, you know, they'll they'll worship you as long as they're healthy. But if you let me inflict something on him, he'll curse you to your face this time, God. So again, okay, here's, here's a little more leash. You know, we talked about how Satan, it's not this opposing side of good versus evil. God is sovereign over all, absolutely 100% in control. Satan is just one of many angels who God gives a certain amount of leeway. And so we see that happening here. And so he inflicts these painful boils on Job, and there's all this sickness that's not you know, clear. We don't know, but it's clearly terrible. And Job still, uh, still proclaims that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Satan is wrong again, but Satan is still working because he's round up some so-called friends of Job and sent them to him to tear him down in his misery. And so they started off right. Friends came and we we saw, uh, so after the first challenge and the loss of wealth, second challenge, bodily affliction, then there's this week of mourning and the friends come and they sit for a week and say nothing. That is great, uh, a great example to us on how to love our friends. Sometimes it's better not to say anything because you're, you're very likely to put your foot in your mouth or to say something that's actually more hurtful than helpful. Um, so they start off right with that week of mourning, but then Job breaks the silence and he's lamenting. And uh, we talked about how uh, Job wishes he was never born and he wishes that God would take his life, but he's not suicidal. He's not saying, I'm going to end my life, uh, though he is pleading for God to take his Um, so that's when we see, and then that kicks off this argument. And that is the bulk of the book, unfortunately, is that we see this debate between Job and his three friends. So he's got these three friends that came to see him, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And so when we jump into chapter 20, we're going to be at Zophar's final argument. So we're going to finish Zophar, and then we're going to hear Eliphaz start round three. Um, So Eliphaz will go to round three, and then Bildad is where we're going to end in chapter 25 today. Bildad is short. He's only six verses, and then he's done. And Zophar is worn out, I guess, because he doesn't even participate in round three. So we're going to finish round two, and then we're going to finish with his terrible friends today. We're going to get through that. And then next week, we're going to cover Job's summary. So he's going to give his final argument to the friends, and then he's going to give a little summary. So he's got six chapters of just hearing from Job that we're going to cover next week as well. And then we'll be into this interesting person named Elihu, who's a young man. Um, And we'll get more into the details of that, but it's very interesting because there's no comment or response to Elihu at all. So we'll we'll talk more about that. But um, God doesn't address him. Job doesn't address him. He has four chapters where he talks, and no one validates what he says or refutes what he says, not even God. And so it's just this interesting, interesting passage. So we'll, we'll get to that next. But today we're going to finish up round two and we're going to get through the friends in round three um, and be done with their side of the argument. Um, so if you haven't been here before, the main argument 
from Job's three friends is that I see you, Job, in this state, the clear uh, reason for you being in this state must be a personal secret sin or some kind of sin in your life. This does not happen to righteous people. Our argument is that only bad things happen to bad people, only good things happen to good people in a very uh, simple, you know, uh, boiled down uh, statement about their argument. And Job, of course, knows the truth and knows the reality, so he's just pleading his case, knowing, I haven't done anything to warrant this. God has done this to me. And they're really, they're not, the friends are not listening to him at all, and they're just berating him. And we can see clearly, this is Satan's plan, right? Because Satan's argument to God is, he will curse you to your face. And this is him trying to work that out through these three friends. And so we're going to jump in here at chapter 20, so we've already heard from Eliphaz and Bildad twice with Job rebutting them in between. This is Zophar's final argument. This is coming to the end of round two. Um, and that, as I said before, a lot of this is going to be repetitive. You know, Zophar, his argument is going to be the same argument that's been. This happens to the wicked. Job, you must be wicked. Um, so there's not going to be a whole lot of new information we're going to pull out of here. Uh, but we will stop and look at things along the way. Okay? So here we are. Job chapter 20, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer, because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. So in other words, he's saying he's stirred up to anger. I am about to respond emotionally to you, Job. This is, Zophar has had it, and he's about to be pretty ugly to Job here. Same way um, they have been already. Do you not know this of old, since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, Yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will restore his wealth. That sounds contradictory to say that. He will restore his wealth because it sounds like it's restoring to him. Um, But that word restore is to replace. In other words, he's going to have to give his wealth back to someone else. So it's going to be restored to the person that from whom he received his wealth. So he's actually giving it up. So um, that's what that's saying there. He's restoring his wealth back to whom it came from. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. He casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream, He will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. There's that restore again. He's returning it back. From the proceeds of business, he will get no enjoyment. For he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not not build. So this is all describing the wicked, but as he's doing that, he's accusing Job with these words. Verse 20, because he knows no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. When he is about to fill his stomach, God will cast on him the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon. A bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. 
and unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart, and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. So we've talked about before that there are true statements within um, what the friends argue. There are true statements. This last statement especially. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. Um, This is a true statement about the wicked. And so much of the problem with the friends is that it's not that their theology is completely wrong. Much of what they say is right. The issue, very much like what we personally deal with today because of how readily available everything is to us, is patience. There's a lack of patience. We're not waiting on God's timing. We're saying, you do something wrong, no time at all, you're going to suffer because of it. But the statement is true that this is their heritage appointed to them, that they will be destroyed, but that's according to God's timing. And much of what the Bible describes, and we're going to read a few few verses here in a minute. We're going to go through Job because Job's going to continue to talk about the wicked, and we're going to get through some more true statements and then come to what God actually says about the wicked. And what we're going to see is that the Bible actually points to a judgment day, right? We're looking forward to a second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, um, and then the destruction of this earth, a new heaven and a new earth, and that judgment that comes during that time is for the wicked. And God has reserved it. And we're going to talk about how great God's patience and waiting is for us. If God was not patient with us, none of us would be here now. Um, All of us were once wicked. Before you were saved, you were considered a child of the devil, as Jesus put it in the New Testament. Um, a, A child of darkness, and he brought us into light. And so his patience with us is something we should definitely love. Um, It points to his great loving kindness. So let's read Job's description of the wicked now uh, in uh, chapter 21. And this is kind of funny, this little intro, these first three verses. He says, Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and after I have spoken, keep mocking. (laughs) So he's saying, Please stop talking. Just listen, listen, listen. But I don't have any hope that this is about to get better. And it's not. It's not going to get better. So, But here he, he's going to continue talking about the wicked here. Uh, As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand on your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified. And trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull breeds without failure. Their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. So we're seeing a stark contrast between what Zophar just said about the wicked and what Job's saying about the wicked. This is Job describing the wicked. This is what their life is like. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. So that sounds a little bit more like what Zophar says, right? That they're here and then they die. But it's actually, he's talking about a blessing because the idea is if you're wicked, you're going to die a miserable, long-suffering death, right? And so he's contrasting that idea. They live, they're happy, and then they die peacefully. It just happens. They, they don't suffer. They're, they're not miserable. They just die in peace. Their families have a beautiful funeral service, and they're buried, right? We see that. You know, it's talking about a party uh, there in verse 12. They sing to the tambourine and harp and rejoice to the sound of the flute. We see wicked people know how to party in this world, right? And we see that they have, you know, excellent health. They can be very, very healthy people and have enormous turns out, turnout for their funerals, right? That's what Job's saying, and, and we see some of this too. Yet they say to God, verse 14, Depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. 
Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job is saying, I'm nothing like these people who say that. But we see this in our world, right? Um, This is the attitude of so many people. You know, who's the Almighty? Why should we serve him? What profit do we have if we pray to him? Um, Let's continue. Verse 17. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? How often does their destruction come upon them? The sorrows God distributes in his anger. They are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. They say, God lays up one's iniquity for his children. Let him recompense him that he may know it. Let his eyes see his destruction and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care about his household after him when the number of his months is cut in half? So Job is kind of calling. He's saying, you're wrong that this happens to the wicked quickly. But he's also asking God, bring it quickly, God. Why do they get to live out their lives whenever they don't even care what happens to their children anyway? And you're going to put it on their children. Bring it quickly. There's that, it's that same impatience. It's told from a, a different side of the, of the wicked, but it's the same impatience. God, do it now. You know, it doesn't seem fair. Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, and the marrow of his bones is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul, never having eaten with pleasure. They lie down alike in the dust, and worms cover them. Look, I know your thoughts, and the schemes with which you would wrong me. So now he's talking back to his friends. For you say, where is the house of the prince, and where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? Have you not asked those who travel the road? And do you not know their, their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? Yet he shall be brought to the grave and a vigil kept over the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet to him. Everyone shall follow him as countless have gone before him. How then can you comfort me with empty words, since falsehood remains in your answers? And so there, in verse 30, Job finally gets to the deepest wisdom. And he says, For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. He's pointing to the future. Um, we're going we're gonna to see later where, where Job talks about what should be. Um, and how dangerous that kind of thinking can be. But here, Job is pointing to the future. So there's a couple other verses I want to point to. So uh, Psalm 50, verse 21, the psalmist is quoting God as he, as he writes this. So Psalm 50, verse 21. And uh, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there uh, and give you some context. So I'm going to start in 16. Uh, but you've got verse 21 on the screen there. So Psalm 50, uh, starting in 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You, you give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And whenever we get to Eliphaz in a minute, there are very similar phrases that Eliphaz is actually saying directly to Job, just like this, and accusing him, as God is accusing the wicked here. So here's 21 on the screen, if you haven't turned there. Uh, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and and set them in order before your eyes. So God is pointing out, very important there, it says, I will rebuke you. God is just, and he carries out his justice in his timing. And so it comes down to waiting patiently on the Lord for his timing. 
And so that's, that's the mistake on both ends of, of this debate between Job and his friends. They're all suffering a little bit from human impatience because it's hard for us to see beyond our own lifetime. How, how can we do that? It's hard for us to see beyond our years. You know, my, my children are young. So whenever I say something like 10 years ago, they're like, that's forever ago because that's more than their lifetimes, right? 10 years ago to many of us is not that long ago. We're like, where did the last 10 years go, right? Um, so it's different. So, you know, most of us, we're not going to live much past 80, 90, 100, right? Um, it's hard for us to even fathom, you know, 2,000 years, which is when Jesus was here, right? How, how do we actually grasp that kind of concept? So how can we have the patience of the Lord? You know, as Peter said, a day to the Lord is like a 1,000 years. A 1,000 years is like a day to him. How can we fathom that? And so they have that short-sightedness that we can all fall prey to. And so this is, again, another reason Job is such a helpful book to us. Uh, let's go to that, uh, actually, on the screen here, Second Peter 3, 9. And this is, again, talking about patience of the Lord because the Lord does have a plan. Um, so to give you the context of Second Peter 3 here, uh, Peter is talking about those who would say, Look around you. And this was back, you know, this is still the first century. This is during Peter's day. But certainly today we would see people like this who would say, you know what? You say Jesus is coming back. He said soon. It's been 2,000 years, guys. You know, everything has been the same. Nothing's changed. People are alike. He's talking about people who would mock us in that way to say Jesus isn't coming back. There's no second coming. It would have happened already. And so... Uh, that's where that verse comes from whenever Peter says, remember, a day is like a thousand years to God. A thousand years is as a day. So if it has been 2,000 years, well, to God, that's two days. (laughs) So soon is still accurate, right? Um, But he's talking about those who would would mock. And here's what he says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, Peter doesn't mean here, he's not saying everyone will repent eventually and come to faith. We know that that's not true. Um, Jesus points that out. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom, right? Not everyone will repent. But what we can look forward to is God's patient, loving kindness toward us and his unwillingness that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God is waiting. That's why it's been 2,000 years. We should look at that in awe and say, how can you be that patient, God? Because every sin, no matter who you've sinned against or who I've sinned against in my life, one to another, you know, either lying or, or being offensive in some way or taking something from somebody or you know, whatever I might do to a person, every single sin, no matter who knows about it, is against God directly. Right? It's totally against God. I, I've heard an, an analogy talk about like, uh, let's say you came to my house and just opened the door and walked in. Well, that'd be okay for all of you. I, that wouldn't bother me. It might be like a little bit culturally weird. I know in some circles it would be considered rude, but it wouldn't be that big a deal, right? But let's say you go to the White House residence and walk in unannounced. Well, now you're in a prison somewhere. No one's going to see you, right? Because it's a matter of who you did it to. You do that to me, it's weird. We'll laugh about it. It's fine. You're welcome. I'll probably get you some food. You do that at the White House, <laughs> you're, you're in huge trouble. So it's a matter of who you do it to. And so if you really consider that our sin is always against God, think about who you've sinned against. And we can rate our sins against one another and say, well, that's not as bad this and this isn't as bad as that but if whenever you put it into a context of an almighty supreme creator of the world who has absolute supreme authority uh, and omniscience and he's absolutely perfect that sin isn't so tiny anymore you know one of the you know the picture of the cross we know is a picture of god's love toward us but it also shows us how serious our sin is Look at what Jesus had to go through on the cross. Your tiny little sin that you don't think is that bad 
you ought to look at the cross and realize Christ died for it. He was completely humiliated, beaten, and, and suffered on the cross to show us this is what your sin deserves. And so it is a picture of God's great love and his great hatred of sin. And so we need to always keep that in mind as we look at the picture of what Christ has done on the cross. And so God is saying uh, there in First Peter, I'm not slack, I'm not lazy, I'm not just, oh, I'll get around to that. That's not God. He is patiently waiting for as many who will repent to repent. That is incredible love. So let's continue on. We're going to get to Eliphaz's final argument. Yay. Tired of hearing from this guy. So chapter 22. Here's his little intro in these first three verses. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God, though he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous, or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? In other words, you think you're righteous and blameless? That makes no sense to us. This doesn't make sense, Job. You wouldn't be in the position you're in if you were actually righteous and blameless. Like, this is preposterous, Job. Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is, it your, is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? He's about to heap all these accusations on Job, just one after another, with no grounds and no evidence at all. This is, this is rough here. Um, for you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land, and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore snares are all around you, and sudden fear troubles you, or darkness so that you cannot see. And an abundance of water covers you. Uh, So there these are related to the time period in history. Verse 7, you have not given the weary water to drink. It was a time when people, there were nomadic people who traveled through. When strangers came through, it was, I think it was actually in the law in Leviticus that if a stranger comes in, you should care for them, give them water, you know, give them rest. Um, He's saying you didn't do that when they came through. And then widows in this day, like a woman could not earn a wage, she couldn't own land, she could not provide for herself really in any other way um, except to remarry or to have sons who could earn and care for her. And so caring for widows, that's why it's such a big deal. You see that in the Old and New Testament, caring for widows. And James talks about true religion is caring for widows and orphans. In those days, they were the most destitute who needed help. And so he's accusing him, just like in that day, um, you did not give the weary anything to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Oh, I lost my spot. Where was it? Widows. Verse 9. Oh, yeah. Thank you. You have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Um, So, again, pointing to these cultural standards, accusing him of it with no evidence. I mean, this isn't true, um, but that's what he's saying. It's the only explanation. Job, you wouldn't be like this. You hadn't done these evil things, so I'm just going to go ahead and accuse you of it um, because that's the only explanation here. Otherwise, this is just crazy. Is not God in the height of heaven? We're in verse 12. And see the highest stars, how lofty they are. And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see. And he walks above the circle of heaven. Will you keep the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away like by a flood? Um, here's that picture we know this culture is very aware of the flood these are probably pretty recent descendants of noah in fact Um, and so this would be very well known about that time Um, notice also throughout this if you were here before when we read job he calls out to god he asks for god to speak he asks for god to show him what he's done to reveal what's going on so he's actually accusing him of having an attitude of God can't see me. God doesn't know. I'm going to get away with this. 
It's not at all what Job has done. These friends did have not listened to him at all. They did, they're just there to speak. They're not there to listen at all. This is good advice for us to learn from by what they've done terribly. Don't be the person who's thinking about what you're going to say next while someone's talking. I've done that before. We've probably all done that at times. Like, I'm going to think about my next good point. And you miss everything they just said. I feel like that's what happened with Job's friends. Not even listening to him when he talks. They're planning their next argument. So don't be that friend. Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod? Verse 15. Who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood. They said to God, depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. So again, just like Job said, the counsel of the wicked, I, I, I'm nothing like them. Here, Eliphaz is saying, I'm nothing like them. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh at them. Surely your adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes their remnant. <clears throat> now acquaint yourself with him, and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir Ophir, uh, among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty. And lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him. He will hear you. And you will pay your vows. You also. Here we go. We, we talked about this verse. Verse 28. Early on. Uh, whenever I was first talking about how uh, the book of Job helps us to read and study the Bible and understand it better. Um, is that in the prosperity gospel. That God wants to make you healthy and wealthy. Give you everything that you desire. This is one of their strong verses that they stand by comes from the Bible. Here it is, Job chapter 22, verse 28. And you, also, you will also declare a thing, and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. And so this is how they support the idea that you claim something, and because God spoke creation into existence, you speak blessings into your life by saying positive things for yourself. And then God will make it come to you, right? That's... Uh, the Secret was a book and a movie that kind of talked about that. It's ridiculous if you've ever seen it. I, I watched it and I was just like, you know, I, I think his first thing was like, do you want pizza tonight? And then pizza showed up at the door. I was like, really? You think this is how the world works? Why don't you go ahead and try that at home and see if that works? Uh, <laughs> but this is, this is what we're talking about, how you can pull a verse and say it's biblical because it came out of the Bible, Right. So you would quote this, you would be correct in saying it's Job 22, verse 28. You'd be accurate in saying that's what the words say. You can say, break it down in English and Greek and say, this is what it means. You know, the way it's translated is a good translation. It must be true. It came from God's word. God spoke it. And the whole time (laughs) you're missing that this is Eliphaz speaking something that's not true and not accurate. And God points it out at the end of the book. That Eliphaz, you spoke wrongly about me. And so we know that we don't trust this statement. And if someone were to pull this quote out, it's very reckless um, and uninformed and a terrible way to study the Bible. And so this helps us to be more prepared and understand God's word in its context. This is the context of a man with mixed theology that's not great. That's who said it, not God. And so it's not true. And I think this also points to, just in general, um, there is a tendency in a lot of churches, especially in America, to sort of sell the gospel. It's like Jesus came to save you from a mediocre life. Jesus will make your life great. You'll have a great sense of purpose, and you'll be happy all the time, and everything's going to start going your way. And we sell Jesus to people, but it's a false Jesus, and so... Therefore, it's a false salvation because that's not the gospel. He does not come to save us from a mediocre life. Um, He comes to save us from the penalty of sin that we could never pay on our own. 
He paid it for us. He redeemed us, right? So don't ever try to sell the gospel. Um, he came to redeem us from our, our sin debt that we can never pay. He saves us from the very judgment that we just talked about that's held for the wicked in the day of judgment. That's what we're saved from. Um, and that's going to be poured out on the wicked. And it, it will be our salvation because we put our faith and our trust in Christ. And that's the, the, the center of the gospel, not all the blessings that you'll receive. I actually heard a story of a guy. Um, he passed away just a few years ago, but he was well in his 90s. But when he was a young man and became a Christian in his 20s, you know, as soon as he was baptized that Sunday, one of the elders of the church came up and said like something like, you know, now your life is all worked out and everything's going to be great, you know. And that's just, that's not the promise we get. Um, and it's not what we should be trying to sell to other people. Don't sell the gospel. It's free. <laughs> uh, and you have to distort it to put a price on it. He will even deliver one. Sorry, we, here we are in verse 30. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. Can anybody be saved by us and our sacrifice? No, he's describing Jesus here. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus can deliver someone who's truly not innocent. Only we can be delivered by Jesus because he was pure. He was the pure spotless lamb who never sinned. I can never be a sacrifice or save another person because I've never been sinless. Only Christ could do that. This is just, I mean, some of Eliphaz is great, but this is way off. Way off track here. Not even true. Let's hear Job's response. We've made it to chapter 23 now. Job's response. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Uh, I didn't know what listless means, so if you don't know what listless means either, um, I had to look it up, but it's just like a heavy, heavy burden. Uh, if it's listless, it's heavy beyond what you can bear. It's heavy. So um, <clears throat> it's heavy because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. So I want to stop here in verse 4. Um, and I want to I want to just talk about something. This is a little aside, but it's something I really enjoy, I, I use uh, a lot of times. So if you look up argument, the definition on Google, this is what you'll get. This is the very first thing, what it'll show. And most of the time, if you use the word argument, we do think of it this way, and I, I, especially the second half. So an exchange of diverging or opposite views, typically a heated or angry one. That's a modern context of the word. And that may be what comes to mind when you think of argument, that it's heated and ugly. So we want to avoid arguments altogether. But the word itself, if you follow it backwards, where you know our, our language came you know, from, we have Greek roots and Latin roots, and we have some German influence, and um, you know, a lot of the languages in the Netherlands and all that kind of stuff have these similarities. But if I, I'm not that kind of scholar, but if you follow it back, the word, and, and use it in a real sense, it doesn't have that connotation. It's adopted the connotation because of how we use words over and over and over again. So now Google has it this way. So the, the reference I, I want to offer to you, there's an app for it, um, but it, it's just called 1828, but it's Noah Webster's Dictionary from 1828. It's the original, and I have the app on my phone, and I use it all the time. And I love it, um, one, because you'll get a whole lot more information. But the biggest thing is the examples on how to explain the definition our scripture, like half the time, to explain how a word is defined, he uses a passage of scripture to show you how it was used in not that context to understand it. Um, so if you want to just look up an app, it's free. It's called 1828. Um, I think it's got like a green emblem on it. But it's Noah Webster's 1828. And I love going back to that. You're not going to find every word. <laughs> he didn't get them all down back then, and we've got a lot of new ones. So sometimes you'll miss out. But I just love looking up something like, you know, law or marriage or love and seeing all the scripture references to understand what those things are 
as opposed to a very modern thumbed-down version. So anyways, to know when they translate the Bible into English, they don't use the most modern interpretation of that word as the culture has grabbed onto it and given it. So the word argument doesn't mean angry or heated. So here's the 1828. A reason offered for or against a proposition, opinion or measure, a reason offered in proof to induce belief or convince the mind, followed by for or against. So you'd say argument for, argument against. It's something that should be done. Um, there's actually a, a passage. Um, I don't think I have a, a slide for it. Uh, I'll just go there. If you want to go there, let's turn there real fast. I know this is an aside. I don't want to take too much time. But go to Acts uh, 17. Hold your place there in Job. Let's go to Acts 17 just real quick and just kind of show you a, a context again. It doesn't use the word argument, um, but it uses similar definitions. So just to kind of show you what Paul Paul's practice was uh, during his time whenever he was traveling and sharing the gospel with uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. So verse 17, or chapter 17, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, so Paul is traveling with Silas um, and with Luke. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so synagogue of the Jews, synagogues, I don't know all the details, but uh, essentially a school, a place of education during the week. Um, but on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, this, on Saturdays, uh, Scripture would be read. It would be somewhat similar to our worship services that we have on Sunday. Um, so it was basically the local church slash school where people would get together and they would discuss and have debates. Then Paul, as his custom was, this means he regularly did this when he went to a new town, he would go to the synagogue and do what? He went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Okay, so Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word for the same thing, who Christ would be, this coming one that God promised that would save mankind from the penalty of their sins. And some of them were persuaded, right? Arguing is meant to persuade and to induce thought and, and turn the mind. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So arguing for the faith was a regular part of Paul's practice. Now, we're not apostles like Paul. We don't all have the exact same calling in life, but there could be and possibly will be in your life times when you should argue for the faith. Don't be heated and angry, you know, the way it's defined in a very modern context, but truly argue for the faith. Reason, offer propositions of why we can trust that Jesus is this Christ, Jesus the Messiah, who saves us from our sin. So, anyways, all, all that to plug, this is what Job means when he says he's going to argue before God. Not heated, not angry, just to offer his case um, before God. That's what this means. He's not angry at God. <clears throat> uh, I, here we are, 23, back in Job 23, verse 5. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would make, but he would take note of me. So he has no hope, really, of winning his arguments, but at least he knows that God would hear him and, and see him and take note of him. That would be excellent in Job's mind. And Job, in a very short time, is going to get to hear from God, and that's going to be a great, uh, great series of sermons to pick apart what it is that God has to say after all of this human argument. Um, where was I? Verse 7. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, 
but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Uh, some, some versions of this, when it says forward, it says east. Uh, backward is west. And when I turn to the left, that's north. Turn to the right, that's south. Um, it was a very common thing directionally for Jews during that time period that that's how they perceived directions. You would stand and face east, and everything in your life was based on that. And then south, which would be to your right, um, we talked, Kason uh, talked about last week that the word Negev in Hebrew means south because that was the furthest south territory in the land of Israel. And so it kind of became synonymous. Can't get any further south than that, right? Um, so it was Negev. Uh, so anyways, some, your version may say that. Um, that's what that's based upon. It's just that Hebrew standard of we face east as our main direction. Um, anyways. Verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Uh, when we talk about the omnipresence of God or the omniscience that he knows all or is everywhere all at once, uh, some people like to argue against Christians that like the Bible doesn't say he's omniscient, doesn't say he's omnipresent, except that it does a whole bunch. It doesn't, those aren't Bible words, but here we see that clearly. He knows the way that I take. <laughs> when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Uh, God knows where you are at all times. He hears and sees absolutely everything. Um, no, the Bible doesn't use the word omniscient or omnipresent, but God certainly is. Um, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Uh, this is echoed in the New Testament, a famous story probably all know well is after Jesus was baptized, he was called out into the wilderness. Uh, Luke 4.4. 4. I have it on the screen here for you. Um, he goes out into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. So that's, I, I, always, I have to explain to my kids, you know, like anytime we get to that portion in the gospels, it's like, it says Jesus is hungry. This isn't like when you want a snack. Like Jesus is like physically close to death. Like he hasn't eaten for 40 days. You're not supposed to be able to do that and live. So when it says Jesus is hungry, this isn't like when you're hungry. This is like serious starvation. Like this is the turning point where if you don't eat soon, your body will completely break down. That's what happens. And so when Satan comes to him and tempts him with food, this is different, a very different type of temptation. But as the Bible says, Jesus was tempted as we are. So he tempts him and says, look, if you're the Messiah, you can turn these rocks into bread, so do it. And Jesus says uh, here in Luke 4, 4, but Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And Job is pleading his case here in front of his friends, and it's true. God hasn't done this because I've sinned, um, that I have kept his ways. And in verse 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Um, verse 13, but he is unique and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me and many such things are with him. So he's recognizing the sovereignty of God, but look what it does to Job. And I want to see what it does for us. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me. Because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. So we know the sovereignty of God, just as Job does, but we are not terrified, as Job is, because we have the demonstration of his love in Jesus. And this is a very common uh, what they, they would call a refrigerator verse. Uh, so it's probably not unfamiliar to many of you, but Romans 5.8. God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Job didn't have that. 
you know, in his day. He understood the sovereignty of God, but he didn't yet see the demonstration of God's incredible love in that sovereignty. Uh, he didn't have the full picture. And I am so grateful that we live in the day that we do because we really have a full picture of who God is. Not down to every detail. There are things we will never know until we see, you know, face-to-face. This is, we sang earlier, when the faith becomes sight. Um, that will definitely be different than what we know now. But we have this beautiful picture that Job didn't have. And so our response is not terror. Um, but we can see his incredible demonstration of love. Chapter 24, Job continues, Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, who do those who know him see not? Why do those who know him see not his days? In other words, God knows when judgment day is. Why won't he tell us? Wouldn't that give us so much hope and strength? If you did know the day and the year, I could totally change your plans and how you do everything, right? It'd be real nice. Judgment day is this date right? You would know exactly what you're going to do next, right? Wouldn't that be great? Um, But God doesn't do that. But God is trustworthy, right? We can wait patiently. That's our theme today, to wait patiently on the Lord. Um, Some remove landmarks. So he's again talking about the wicked here. Some remove landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. Uh, So when I moved into our house, I went and found our landmarks, and they were these rebar that were driven into the ground, and I could find it with a metal detector. And they were there. I guess I could have moved it, but, I mean, the likelihood is not great. They drive those way in. But back then, it was just like a stack of rocks, like, for your land property. And it was out away, you know? It was like a distance. You didn't necessarily work at the cor- every corner of your land. So you got this pile of rocks out there. If you're not watching it, your neighbor can come by, pick up all the rocks, move them wherever they want, and say, you know, this is my land. So that's what he's talking about, moving landmarks. You're stealing land from people. You're stealing uh, potential crops and grazing land for flocks and that sort of thing. So that's what he's talking about. Uh, They seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkeys of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. This is talking about the poor. They go out searching for food. Uh, The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked, then spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. So a part of the culture of providing for the poor was to provide work for the poor um, that they could glean the excess. So the process of harvesting, you would you know, get a first harvest and things would be dropped and left to the side. And God you know, told his people, don't go pick up the excess that falls. Don't pick up any of the, the extras. That's for the poor to come and to, and to give. So an evil person would, I mean... To obey God first would be to just pick it up and not give the poor a chance. That would be bad enough. But what it's saying here is that the evil person leaves it, lets the poor do the work of gathering it, and then steals it from the poor. Um, And steals it back and leaves them naked and hungry. Uh, So Job is describing the absolute worst of the worst. Um, Verse 8, they are wet with the showers of the mountains, the poor, and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. There was also a practice where uh, if someone needed to come and work for you uh, to prove that they weren't going to steal from you or run away if they were your slave or your servant, they would give you their coat, their overcoat that they would use to sleep with to keep them warm at night so that at the end of the workday, they would bring in their harvest and get their coat back. And so an evil person would not give it back. It's mine now. You better come back tomorrow. They'd sleep in the cold. So again, just another picture of, of evil mistreatment of others. Verse 9, some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing, and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. 
They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not change them, charge them with wrong. It's not true. It's not true. He charges them with wrong. But again, we have to wait patiently for God to carry out the sentence on those charges. And his timing is perfect. So here's where we're going to get here in just a minute where Job talks about what should be. But in verse 12 here, he's wrong. God does charge them with wrong, but he carries it out in his own time. Verse 13, there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways, nor abide in its paths. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy. And and in the night, he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me. And he disguises his face. In the dark, they break into houses while they marked themselves, while they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light, for the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. I want to go to a couple verses that echo this. Uh, John 3. So when you think of John 3, John 3.16, right? That's, that's, I mean, I don't, I've never met a person who didn't know John 3.16, right? Um, John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses ever, but we're going to be in 18, so it's just after this. For God so loved the world gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He came into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's 16 and 17 and here's 18. He who believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Um, Just a a side note for myself. Uh, Sometime around like late teens, early 20s, um, I kind of had this idea that the Bible doesn't answer why. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us why. God does what he does. And there are many things. We don't know why God does what he does, and that's true. Um, But when I really started to take the Bible seriously, I started circling every time the Bible answered why because I had that mentality before. So anytime you see so that or because or something, I do a double circle around it because I understand why something happened. Um, So men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They could hide in the dark. Light exposed them. They hated it. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And so the first thing that the Holy Spirit does for a lost person is to convict the world of sin and death. That's what the Bible says. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and death. And there are two responses to that. Um, And the one that leads to salvation is repentance. And the other one is like this. You hate the light because you'd rather be in the darkness because you don't want to be exposed because you hate the feeling of guilt. You hate that feeling of shame. And so you want to bury it and continue to hide in the dark. Um, So that's, that's what this is talking about. Continue on, we're almost done. They should be swift on the face of the waters. Their portion should be cursed in the earth so that no one would turn into the way of their vineyards. So here's where I was talking about before. This is a dangerous thought of what should be uh, because it implies that God is either wrong or perhaps has made mistakes. We need to not ever think that things should be something different than the way they are in God's will and plan, right? Um, if God has done something, then it should be that. Let's submit ourselves to the reality that whatever God does and however he chooses to do it is how things should, in fact, be. Um, Verse 20. The womb should forget him 
the worm should feel sweetly on him, feed sweetly on him. That's a pretty picture. He should be remembered no more, and weakness, weak, sorry, wickedness should be broken like a tree. For he preys on the barren who does not bear, who do not bear, and does no good for the widow. But God draws the mighty away with his power. He rises up, but no man is sure of life. He gives them security and they rely on it, yet his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted for a little while, then they are gone. They are brought low. They are taken out of the way like all others. They dry out like the heads of grain in God's timing. Now, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? (laughs) So Job, who can prove me wrong? Go ahead, try guys. So here we are. We're going to be finished with the arguments. Chapter 25 is very short, just these six verses, but we're going to see something that's repeated. Uh, One final note I want to point out here, and this is another great example for us and how we treat one another. Job's friends never prayed for him. I didn't realize that until it was pointed out to me. Job's friends never prayed for him. We see many of Job's prayers to God in the midst of this. His friends never prayed for him at any point. Let's not be those friends. Let's, let's lead with prayer. Let's make that first. Uh, so here's Bildad. This is very repetitive. Um, we've heard this before, and it's just short. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who was born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? Uh, Those last three verses there, 4, 5, and 6, are repeated uh, earlier. So in Job 9.2, Job poses that exact same question in in verse 4. How can man be righteous before God? And then Eliphaz in in chapter 15, 14 through 16. Almost the exact same word for word, um, but instead of if the stars are not pure, he says his holy ones are not pure, like talking about the angels. So it's very repeated. um, And so I just want to repeat this last passage in closing uh, on the screen. This is from Romans 3, 19 through 26. And this answers that very important question. How can man be justified before God? Paul lays it out here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if it's just following the law, no one will be righteous. No one can be. So how? How? We haven't answered yet. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, not to be sold, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how can man be justified before God? Through faith in Jesus. So what's our response today? Wait patiently on the Lord. His timing is perfect. If you're facing something in your life and you're asking, when, God, when? The answer is, at the perfect time. That's when. Don't judge someone's actions based on their circumstances. You can never tell based on where someone's circumstances what their decisions have been. It doesn't mean they're sinful. Uh, It doesn't mean they're righteous. You have no idea. What you should do is start with prayer. You should pray for them. Start from there. Um, And then, of course, if you haven't, repent, trust, and submit to Christ Jesus. He's the only one who can justify us before God. He's the only one who can save. And no one can do that part for you. Um, you got to put your trust 
in him. You've got to repent of your sin and turn. And if you have, be prepared and willing to argue, to persuade, and to contend for the gospel whenever it presents itself. Let's pray. Thank you.